Today on Let Me Be Frank, what a treat. We have as our special guest, Dr. John Bergsma. He's a professor of theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville and author of many books, very funny guy, and, uh, and you will learn a lot from this conversation that he has with Bishop Frank today. So keep us right here on your radio at 1350 AM and 103.9 FM, or keep us on your phone with the Veritas mobile app. You can get the app at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or veritascatholic.com. And if you're enjoying Let Me Be Frank, you can help us out by going to your favorite podcast platform and giving us a five-star rating or a review. Of course, Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad, the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Okay, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee. It is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, good to see you, my friend. Hey, Excellency. Yeah, nice to see you. Mm-hmm. Still with your soccer, soccer shirt on, I see. So hopefully it's not the same one you had last week. <laughs> <laughs> no, no I, I do wash them once in a while. <laughs> I like staying married, so... Um, but uh, no, yeah, as you know, September and October, it's consumed with soccer for me with my high school team that I coach and also on the weekends with the uh, European professional teams that I watch. So it's great. <laughs> it's great. It's the best time of year for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but this week is not about me. We have a special guest. And let's see. So as our listeners know, my oldest son is a senior now at Franciscan University and um I should probably say I'm not trying to get any extra points for him by having professors on with us. You know, actually, he probably doesn't need the help anyway. But um, I, I will say he's never had any classes with any of our guests. Okay, so but we do have a fantastic guest lined up for today. He's an expert on theology and stick figure drawings. So, Dr. John Bergsma is professor of theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Um, He was a former Protestant uh, pastor, and Dr. Bergsma entered the Catholic Church in 2001 while getting his PhD in Bible from the University of Notre Dame. Now, he's a close collaborator, as many people know, with Dr. Scott Hahn at the St. Paul Center, and Dr. Bergsma speaks regularly on Catholic radio and at Catholic conferences and parishes nationally and internationally. He's authored over a dozen books on scripture and the Catholic faith, including Bible Basics for Catholics, that's a favorite of uh, my 17-year-old, Stunned by Scripture, How the Bible Made Me Catholic, A Catholic Introduction to the Bible Old Testament. His talks are available at catholicproductions.com, and Dr. Bergsma and his wife, Dawn, live in Steubenville with their eight children, ranging from 10 to 28 years old. Wow. Just that alone, Doc- you deserve the Nobel Prize. My gosh. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Dr. Bergman, would- thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs> Absolutely. It's great to be out with you guys. Thank you so much. Wow. No, my pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to, to chat with us and, of course, chat with uh, our listeners as well. 
So, mm -hmm. John, I always ask the same question of guests, so you're going to get it as well, and that is, um, to the extent that you're comfortable, tell us your faith journey, right? How, <laughs> how did you, what brought you into the church? What actually brought you to faith first, and then into the into the Catholic Church second? Tell us the uh, your Emmaus story, if I may put it that way, since we all have our own. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh I'm wondering if you want the three-minute, the 30-minute, or the three-hour version. Uh, but uh, we'll try to keep it to the three-minute oh, version. Okay. Somewhere think, between three and ready. 30. <laughs> <laughs> right, because of the segment like. Um, yes, so first, how did I come to faith? Um, I was born into a faith-filled family. Uh, my father was a Protestant preacher, a U.S. Navy chaplain, close friend, of uh, Chaplain John O'Connor, who later became John Cardinal O'Connor and Archbishop of New York, but was just a Navy chaplain for mm. over 20 years and a friend of my dad's. Um, of course, we were in, we were in Dutch, Dutch Calvinist background. That's kind of like Presbyterians with wooden shoes uh, kind of thing. So ethnically Dutch, <laughs> but, uh, you know, doctrine pretty much the same as Presbyterians. Um, but my dad was very devout, very dedicated to the Word of God, and he was a great orator, great preacher, uh, made a powerful impression on me as a kid. And uh, I later uh, went to seminary and planned to follow in his footsteps, kind of small detour into biblical scholarship, but, you know, same kind of general field. Uh, my mother, too, great woman of prayer. Um, my mother started me reading the Bible through in a year as a devotional practice when I was 12 years old. And I kept that devotional practice up uh, for most of my adolescence and into my college years. Um, so uh, born into a faith-filled environment, but you know, I did have a Sunday school teacher uh, when I was about eight years old who stressed the need to really own our faith and, and like pray individually to receive Jesus into our lives. And uh, she asked us to do that in class and I was too nervous. But after the Sunday school class was over, I walked out on the lawn of the school where we're meeting and I prayed to my, by myself that Jesus would come into my heart. And I truly, you know, I had, I had some, it was an experience. It, it was like, I had sensations and things, you know, it was, it was a, it was a spiritual experience. I felt this lightness and, you know, things, mm -hmm. things that people talk about. I, I really did. And, um, so I, I wouldn't, you know, I would say I was saved at my baptism. But um, that was a kind of a, a spiritual communion there that was a, a real step forward mm -hmm. of, you know, personally embracing uh, the faith that was uh, given to me by my parents. Um, so uh, later in high school, I had a lot of options, but I prayed a lot and I had like an interior locution. Uh, Lord telling me uh, to go into the ministry of the word, you know, to uh, which at that time meant, you know, be a, be a preacher like my father. So I went to our denominational college, which was in West Michigan, and I followed all the, the specified pre-seminary and seminary requirements, et cetera, and got married and, and uh, was actually serving a church while I was in seminary. And um, this is now, I'm talking now about my journey into the Catholic faith, which really began when I started actively being a Protestant pastor, and when I started doing Protestant ministry, I began to realize the weaknesses of fundamental Protestant principles, like salvation by faith alone. Um, 
when I would evangelize people like that, they took that to mean all they had to do was pray to receive Jesus, and then they could go off and do whatever they want. And, and they were good to go, and we're going to go straight to heaven. And I'm like, no, no, no. You know, there's the path of discipleship. And they're like, well, I thought you said it was by faith alone. So I ran into that kind of internal contradiction of this faith alone language. That's a real problem. And I could talk, you know, a lot longer about that. But uh, I'll, I'll just keep that a, as a brief point for now. And then also um, the, this idea of the Bible alone. Uh, what I discovered when I would meet with other Protestant pastors is that there were thousands of different interpretations of Scripture and and about important issues. Like there, there was no agreement on what baptism actually did or when you should apply it. Um, lots of differences about marriage and divorce and remarriage and sexual morality and like you name it. There, there was no agreement on anything among us. And we all had Bible verses to back up our positions. And I began to realize that, <laughs> um, yeah, I began to realize that sola scriptura or this Bible alone idea, it always degenerates into what I call verses, verses, verses. It's like you got your verses, I've got my <laughs> verses. And so it's your verses against my verses, 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 verses. That's that's the that's what sola scripture ends up being. And you don't have a common court or any like common authority to decide who's got the right interpretation. And so I realized that this doesn't really work. This is a problem. We, we need something else. So in that kind of state of doubt, um, I actually didn't even know if I wanted to be fully ordained. I was kind of like a transitional deacon. That's how Catholics would think of what, what I was at that time. We had different language for it, of course, but it's kind of in that transitional uh, thing. And, and time came for me to be fully ordained, and I didn't know if I wanted to go through with it. So what I did was uh, uh, send out applications to a lot of different graduate schools and try to stall for time by taking another degree, right? This is the great American way. Uh, if you don't know what to do with mm -hmm. yourself, you go to grad school. So, uh, uh, so I got mm -hmm. into a doctoral program, and 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 by God's providence, you know who who accepts me and gives me the best financial offer? Well, the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, right? So um, I didn't even know that Notre Dame was in Indiana. I thought they were in Los Angeles because they played um, Southern California every year in football, you know. And so I thought they were crosstown rivals. So I literally did not know where Notre Dame was located. That was only two hours south of me uh, in, from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, But anyway, so I got accepted by the school and um, got into the doctoral program there. Met a man who blew my mind, had three qualities I never thought I'd find in the same person. He was highly intelligent, full of the Holy Spirit, and Catholic. And I thought... If you're highly intelligent, full of the Holy Spirit, you're going to get out of the Catholic Church. Like, why would you stay in the Catholic Church, which is a false church, you know? <laughs> and and so I, I was like, why is this? I, literally, I thought to myself, why is this guy still Catholic? So, got together with him, I and and we began to talk theology. Uh, I would criticize the Catholic Church with my with my usual arguments, like call no man father from Matthew 23. And then he did something very unfair. Mm -hmm. When I would raise these criticisms, he would pull out a Bible and answer from the Bible. And I thought, hey, that's against the rules. <laughs> you know, I, I'm the Protestant, <laughs> you're the Catholic. Like, I'm supposed to quote Bible, you're supposed to quote the Popes or something, you know? 
uh, and he, he, he <laughs> turned the tables on me. In fact, I learned to carry a pocket Bible from a Catholic, uh, from, from this man who, spoiler alert, ended up being my sponsor. But anyway, um, long story short, he defended the Catholic faith from Scripture. I was amazed, but we did reach kind of an impasse because it was that versus 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 thing again, you know, with, you know, but I, I respected him because he could quote verses and defend his position. But like, who's going to decide? So his name was Michael. He said, why don't we let the earliest of the church fathers decide? Why don't we look at how they interpreted the Bible? And I didn't know he was setting me up for a trap here, but he was, you know, trying to get me to read the apostolic fathers. And I gullibly agreed to this, uh, thinking that, well, of course, the earliest fathers are going to turn out to be Calvinists, right? <laughs> because everybody knows the early church is Calvinist. This is how I've been raised to think. So we start reading Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch, and I start getting blown away. You know, Clement of Rome is all about apostolic succession, which is very Catholic. And then you get into Ignatius of Antioch, and he's saying things like, wherever the bishop is, there's the Catholic Church. Don't celebrate a Eucharist not approved by your bishop. You know, as Dutch Calvinists, we, we had neither bishops nor the Eucharist. We, we rejected both. You know, so I'm like, boy, my, my Christianity doesn't sound like the kind of Christianity that these first Christians had. And then the kicker was, though, at the in, in Ignatius of Antioch's letter to the Smyrnaeans, at the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, he's talking about different heresies, and he warns the Christians of the city of Smyrna, in mod, now it's in modern-day Turkey. He warns them, stay away from anyone who refuses to confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ which suffered for our sins and which the father raised for our salvation now notice he doesn't say who suffered and who was raised but which and i i had a greek major out of college so i got out the greek and i looked and the relative pronoun is very clearly look going back to the flesh because it's feminine and sarx is feminine in greek the word for flesh and so when he says Stay away from anyone who denies that the Eucharist is the flesh of Jesus Christ, which suffered and which was raised. He means the flesh that suffered, the flesh that was raised. It's not just talking about Jesus in some spiritual sense. It's the what my point is mm -hmm. the language is so graphic. It's so like tangible, like you can touch. It's like the the the, the very flesh, you know? And and I was floored. I was absolutely floored. And I read it several times, and I, I remember thinking to myself, there's no way to get a symbolic interpretation out of what he just said. Um, he, in fact, is ruling mm -hmm. out symbolic interpretations of the Eucharist and saying, no, it, it, it just becomes the flesh, the same flesh that suffered and was raised. That's, that's Jesus's flesh. And, 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 then, and then I thought back to the New Testament, and it occurred to me, you know what? The, the plain sense of all the passages in the New Testament about the Eucharist are simply that it's Jesus' body. And I'm supposed to be a Protestant who's supposed to be all about the plain sense of Scripture and just following the plain sense. So how ironic is that, that this Catholic is taking the plain sense and I'm trying to get around the plain sense, you know? And then I thought, well, okay, I better check to make sure that Ignatius is not just like a one-off in that, you know, he's not the only one that ever said this. Well, guess what? He's not the only one who says things like this. Ambrose, mm -hmm. 
talks like this, Origen talks like this, Augustine, whom Calvinists revere, Augustine in his Psalms commentary says things like, Jesus held himself in his own hands at the Last Supper. Augustine says things like, it's not a sin to worship the Eucharist. It's a sin not to worship the Eucharist. And that was particularly dramatic because we had a doctrinal statement that I, that I had to sign on to that held that the Catholic Mass was a condemnable idolatry because in it bread and wine were worshipped as if they were God. So reading Augustine saying it's not a sin, that, that it's uh, not a sin to worship the Eucharist, but a sin not to, Augustine, who was our hero, Augustine, who we claimed as a kind of early Calvin or a proto-Calvin, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I am really on the wrong boat. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not in line with the teaching of the early church. And uh, so, I mean, it, it was like changing my whole view of the world, quite literally. You know, just, you know mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. who's, you know, I look back at history and the people that I thought were the bad guys suddenly became the good guys and the people that I thought were the good guys, suddenly, you know, so white hats and black hats are flipping, you know, down the, down the pathway mm -hmm. of history and my mind's eye. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I felt like a Russian spy who goes into an American library and starts reading about Bolshevism and realizes, oh, I'm working on for the wrong <laughs> team, you know, like goodness gracious. So anyway, I'll, I'll leave it there. That, that was in uh, the fall of 2000. And uh, by February, uh, February 24th, 2001, I was confirmed by Bishop Jenke, uh, lately of Peoria, Illinois. He was auxiliary of uh, Fort Wayne South Bend at that time. And my wife came into the church with me and our, our uh, we had small children, six small children at the time came in. And um, yeah, and then eventually went down to Steubenville to work with Dr. Scott Hahn. <laughs> so that's my journey to faith right. what an and amazing uh, my journey story. into the church. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, God is what amazing. It's an incredible it's story. story. Yeah. Yeah. But it's yeah. also a great testimony to your intellectual and pastoral honesty, right? Because a lot of people would well, read it and just dismissed it, but you actually took it to heart, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's trying that, to, trying to live with yourself, you know, trying, I, I wanted to be mm -hmm. in a church communion where, um, what they believed was what I believed. And like, it was all consistent, you know, that I could truly affirm this. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. for years, Mm -hmm. I had been in a situation where I didn't really believe sola scriptura anymore, didn't believe uh, uh, sola fide anymore, and yet I was in a in a group that held those things to be true, and and I felt like I was not being honest. So I really wanted to be authentic and mm -hmm. have a clear conscience, and and I found that I could do mm -hmm. that in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. May I ask a personal question? Were your parents alive when you converted? Are they alive yes. now? Yes. They are. They are. Yep. So yep. what was their um, reaction? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, you know, it's, it's really interesting, Bishop, because um, uh, my, the reaction was not what I expected. My mother had always had sympathies for the Catholic Church. She knew a lot of priest chaplains ah. uh, in, the, in the Navy. Mm -hmm. And by and large, almost, almost to a man, they were really admirable people. Um, the, the, the priests mm -hmm. that serve the military tended to be really, really the real deal. And, uh, my father had known, for example, mm -hmm. uh, uh, father Capadano, you know, and, um, and, and some other really stellar oh, sure. examples. 
Yeah. And um, so my mother, my mother had these sympathies. In fact, my mother was an early Protestant activist in the, in the pro-life movement. You know, I was born in 71. Roe v. Wade was 73. We were living in Hawaii. My mother got involved in pro-life activity, and the word got back to the Bishop of Honolulu that there was this Protestant woman showing up for rallies. And at that time, it was only Catholics at first, you know, who, who were defending life. And, um, and so the, the Bishop of Honolulu was interested and said, can I meet this Protestant woman? And they set up a meeting, and then my mother developed a friendship with the Bishop of Honolulu, and she served as a liaison to coordinate, you know, Catholic, Protestant, ecumenical, pro-life stuff. Through the bishop, she learned Catholic morality. And then when I was ready to get married, she told me that I should go to a Catholic church for marriage prep. And so my wife and I went to a Catholic church to be trained by the Couple to Couple League in natural family planning. (laughs) When, when, uh, during our, during our courtship, during our, during our engagement, you know, but we had no plans to become Catholic. We just thought, well, they're, they just happened to be right on this, you know? And, um, so my wife and I have always been open to life. And, uh, and so I'm just giving you some illustrations of how, you know, my, my mother was very Catholic Mm -hmm. friendly, but when it came down to, uh, to telling her that I was actually becoming Catholic, you know, she found that really, uh, upsetting. You know, and so we would have these long talks, uh, you know, well into the night. And um, and but but it was very interesting because, uh, you know, like the topic of confession came up and and I showed her John uh, 20 verses 22 and 23 uh, um, of, um, you know, Jesus breathed on the apostles and said to them, um, receive the Holy Spirit whose sins you forgive are forgiven them whose sins you retain are retained. And I remember, remember my mother saying, let me look at that, <laughs> and taking the Bible out of my hands and looking at that passage. And this is, this, this is my beloved mother who, to this day, you know, reads five or six chapters of Scripture a day and, and taught me to read the Bible through in a year and, and so on. But mm-hmm. it's, it's so mm-hmm. interesting, Bishop, mm-hmm. how you can read these passages and not think about them or not see them from how the church, see them in the way that the right. church has traditionally right. seen them. And um, so that was very interesting. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Mm -hmm. as for my father, um, you know, he, uh, we were a little bit uh, estranged at the time. So uh, there wasn't much of a reaction uh, from him. Um, It was, it was kind of, uh, you know, well, uh, different strokes for different folks, uh, I suppose. Different folks. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. was was the reaction. But that's, you know, I got a variety of, you know, we, my, my, some of my grandparents were living at the time and, and some of them were very upset. So wide variety of reactions. Oh yeah. Well, and that's why all the more reason why I admire your, your, your courage to follow your conscience really in the end, as it turns out to be. Let me ask you. So it's fair to say in John's life, the Bible, the Holy word of God is like foundational to your spiritual life. Is that a fair statement to say? Yeah. Yeah. Always, yeah. always has been. So, so if I uh, were, the- and always will be. Mm-hmm. So if I were to say to you, so tell me, why is the word of God so important? Like I'm typical Catholic. I say my prayers. I say my rosary. I don't read the scripture. I seem to be content. What would you say to me? Say, you're missing, kiddo. You're missing something big. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. What I would say <laughs> is, um, 
You know, look at the example of Jesus. Uh, Jesus knew the scriptures well. Jesus quoted the scriptures. When Jesus was in his direst hours of his ministry, when he was starving to death in the desert and being under severe temptation from Satan, what does he do? He stands on the word of God and he actually quotes the Bible back to the devil. When he is at mm -hmm. his most extreme pain on the cross um, at the final hours of, of saving us from our sin, he is quoting from the Psalms. You know, into your hands I commend my spirit. That's a quote from the Psalms. Um, uh, uh, Lord, Lord, why hast thou um, forsaken me? That's actually the first line of Psalm 22. People don't realize it, but he's actually quoting the word of God from the cross. So <laughs> I think that's the most, one of the most powerful arguments I can think of is that, well, if we want to be like Jesus, and he's the God man, and he found it necessary to commit scripture to memory, um, and, and to meditate on it, well then, you know, how much more so do I need to do that? Right. That's an excellent answer. I think it's quite persuasive, at least to <laughs> me. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we're, we're due for a break, but when we come back, uh, we're going to dive a little bit more in into, into Scripture itself and some of your insights, including to explain to people the Dead Sea Scrolls and the role of Qumran and all the things that people may have anecdotally heard but not necessarily know much about? Yep. Okay, sounds great. great. That, that's going to be awesome. I've got my pen and, and paper ready to take a ton of notes on that part of it. So this is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. His Excellency is speaking with Dr. John Bergsma, biblical scholar and expert and professor of theology at the Franciscan University at Steubenville. We'll be right back. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. His Excellency is speaking with Dr. John Bergsma, Professor of Theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville. 
Dr. Bergsma, you mentioned, if I, if you don't mind, you mentioned that you uh, converted from Calvinism. And I just thought it's so interesting that the Calvinist thing that you said you had to sign in order to become a pastor stated that Catholics worship the Eucharist. So they understand what we, what we are supposed to believe. Mm -hmm. And yet it's ironic that I, I think so many Catholics in the pews don't get it. Mm -hmm. Well, right. if I may build on that, it's, it's interesting. How many Catholics have had the opportunity to read uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch or St. Clement of Rome? or we mentioned St. Augustine, or St. John Chrysostom, or the list goes to origin, the list goes on and the Didache goes on and on and on. It was an Orthodox rabbi who told me that if I wanted to truly be an intelligent, faithful, knowledgeable Catholic, I needed to read the Fathers of the Church because they're almost like the Talmud of the Christian scripture. Right. And we need, we, and I'm talking about myself in leadership in the diocese, leadership in throughout the diocese, we need to unlock the possibility for people to have that, because even if you're Catholic, to your point, you may not truly appreciate or understand what it is we believe. It, it doesn't require, yeah. it, it, it's a different type of conversion, but it's still a conversion, right? Right, right. Yeah, and, absolutely. And that's gems that we need to 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 kind of really give the possibility of people to to understand the great continuity that is the church, right? The mystical body mm -hmm. of Christ. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and when I was in high school, there was a big kick in educational theory at that time about reading primary sources. Yeah. So so John, allow me to ask you this question. Um so you have specialized in certain aspects of scripture, right? All along the way. And one of the things I noticed when I was reading some of your, the, the writings that you've produced, which are very extensive, the Dead Sea Scrolls, for the average person, what are, like, how would you explain, what are they, these scrolls? That's a great question. So the way I like to put it is that the Dead Sea Scrolls are the library of a Jewish monastery that flourished during the time of Jesus, uh, really from about the mm -hmm. years 150 before Christ to about the time that Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70. And so it's this, um, you know, essentially a Jewish monastery. And when I say that, you know, some people are like, a Jewish monastery? Yes, there was a sect of Jews known as the Essenes who practiced celibacy and even sponsored monasteries. And we've known about them for quite some time uh, because uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, um, who was a contemporary of St. Paul and wrote a lot of history of this era, uh, he uh, describes them. And so these Jewish monks um, had a library that consisted originally of probably about a thousand scrolls. You know, books were written on scrolls mm. back at that time. So an enormous library for the time period. And about a quarter of those scrolls were copies of what we would recognize as books of the Bible. And then the, two, uh, the, the, the remaining three quarters of these scrolls were things that you would expect to find in a monastic library. Things like lectionaries, um, liturgical calendars, um, prophecies, biblical commentaries, et cetera, et cetera. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls provide us a fascinating uh, treasure trove of the, the religious practice and the religious thinking of a very devout 
uh, group of Jewish men. At the same time as Jesus was ministering and the apostles after him were spreading the gospel from precisely that time period that we're so interested in. And as a result, we can shed light on, on uh, many, many details, actually, I would argue, in the Gospels and in the epistles that are kind of uh, mystifying or hard to explain. But in light of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we see, oh, that's actually um, like a, 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 an artifact or a reference to Jewish culture of that time. Are there any direct references to either the Lord himself or the early Christians at all in any of those scrolls? Um, there aren't. There's been, there's been some uh, claims by a few scholars that, you know, that a, that a fragment of the Gospels was found among the scrolls, but that looks to be kind of, un, that, that looks to be unlikely. I would say um, th it doesn't seem that any mm -hmm. truly Christian documents uh, were found among the scrolls. Now, people should know, Catholics should be aware, however, that the Jewish historian of this time, Josephus, does have some very significant testimony about Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, uh, James, the brother of the Lord, who is Bishop of Jerusalem, as well as many of the figures who show up in Acts, like Felix and Festus and Princess Bernice and Drusilla and the Herods. All of these figures are not figures of legend. They are figures of history, and they show up mm -hmm. in, in the histories mm -hmm. of the time. But now in the Dead Sea Scrolls, mm -hmm. although there's no references to uh, specific uh, Christian persons, uh, what is fascinating is that these monks would gather every day at 11 in the morning, and they would don white robes, and they would dunk themselves in water that they believed uh, cleansed them from sin and gave them the Holy Spirit. And then after that uh, water washing was over, they would gather in a common room and they would have a sacred meal together that consisted of bread and wine. And why did they do that? Well, it, it was as it were practice because they expected that when the Messiah came, he would share a meal of bread and wine with them. And that that participation in that banquet was a sign that they were in the new covenant. Uh, I mean, sound like a uh, a major world religion that we all yes, know. Yes, it certainly does. I mean, <laughs> you, you, you can't make this stuff up. You can't make this stuff up. And, um, you know, it's so interesting. It was, uh, I, I studied the scrolls as, as a doctoral student for years before, before realizing that this was their religious practice. Like people mm -hmm. that talk about the scrolls don't lead with this information. They don't, they don't talk about how similar the, 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 what we might call the sacramental life of these monks was to early Christianity. And, um, you know, and, and somebody might come along and people have come along and said, oh, well, that shows that Christianity is not original, that it, it was copying from this Jewish group that came before. But Bishop, my argument and what I, the argument I make in my book on this topic called Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls is that, you know, really as Christians, we talk about how the Holy Spirit was getting the people of God ready mm -hmm. to receive the Messiah. And in fact, these monks went out into the desert to make a monastery to fulfill Isaiah 40, verse 3, which says, in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. So they went out there with the intention to 
get ready for the coming of the Messiah. And um, and I, the way I understand this is God answered their prayers. Mm-hmm. And in an unwitting way, I don't think they realized how well they were really preparing, that, that they were getting themselves into the, what I call the shape of the church, even before the coming of Jesus. In fact, in the scrolls, they refer to their community as a church using the Hebrew word kahal, uh, which translates to ecclesia and then, and then to church in English. So uh, th- that's really my argument is that with, with this very devout group that was practicing prayer and uh, fasting and, and, and meditating on scripture, God was showing themselves, showing them things and getting them ready for that transition into the new covenant. Right. So is Qumran the place where the scrolls were found? It is, yes. That's that's the name of the site on the uh, northwest shore uh, of the Dead Sea. <laughs> they, they, it's kind of directly uh, east of Jerusalem. And um, that, that line from Isaiah 40, verse 3, in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Mm-hmm. In Judaism, you take your directions from the perspective of Jerusalem. So to go to the desert means to head east down into that barren area. Mm-hmm by the Dead Sea. And what I believe they did was just head straight east until they hit the sea mm-hmm. and couldn't go further and just said, well, this is where mm-hmm. we will prepare God's way in the desert. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. That's, that is so fascinating. Um, and Josephus, I remember in the seminary reading Josephus, to your point, and about the historicity of the figures that are in the New Testament and his own perspective, obviously it's pagan, but his own perspective Right. It's 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 again, it is something that our people need to be exposed to, to fill in the picture. Right. Yeah. Not that our yeah. religion is some myth that dropped out of nowhere. There's a context. Yeah. For it. So another, Fi- I'm sorry, please. Oh, f- filling in. Yeah, I, I like the way you say to, the, to fill in. And and I, I think the scrolls really uh, make a strong case for. The, his, the historicity of the Gospels, that in the Gospels, we're not getting legends written later, but really uh, oftentimes eyewitness accounts. And uh, let me give you just one illustration, Bishop, and mm-hmm. that's in Mark 14, 51 and 52. We read about this, this young man who was following Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane, wearing nothing but a single linen garment. And, uh, you know, the, the guards show up and try to grab him and he slips out of the garment and runs away naked. And it's just like two weird verses. <laughs> Nothing prepares for that. It's like this, you know, it's like a streaker who's photobombing the shooting of the Passion of the Christ, you know. <laughs> it's like, what's this naked teenager doing here? But actually, it's so interesting that it describes him as wearing nothing but a single linen garment. And that's how the Essenes dressed. And we, we only know that from the scrolls and from Josephus. And the mm. only fabric that they would wear was linen. The only fabric that we've recovered from Qumran is only linen, but they they lived poverty. Linen was expensive, so it was usually a sign of wealth, but they lived poverty, and so they would only wear a single garment of it, which is a sign of, of uh, poverty and of, of self-restraint. So this odd kind of self-contradiction that you've got enough money to buy linen, but you're only wearing a single garment, that was kind of an odd way to do things. People that could afford linen would often have robes and stuff. Mm-hmm. So the fact that he's wearing that, so that's an interesting like cultural tidbit that 
you know, otherwise it's like a throwaway couple of verses from the Gospels, but only somebody who lived at that time would understand kind of the cultural significance of that. Right. And, and, and so we see that the details in the Gospels aren't things that are made up later, but that really reflect the Jewish culture uh, of, mm-hmm. of Jesus' time. Mm-hmm. And, it, and especially that it's so subtle. It's just kind of, you know, uh, it, it doesn't really call attention to itself, just like a little bit of, a, a little bit of uh, you know, color to the story. But then later you find out, oh yeah, that fits exactly in the in the in the culture and the practice of that time. Right, and also raises the question, uh, and I thank you for 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 adding that because I wondered to myself, and of course perhaps there's no answer to this question, is whether or not the any of the Essenes were present at the Lord's ministry, had an opportunity to speak with him, interacted in any way in the years of his public ministry. It's a question that perhaps has no answer, but it's intriguing. It is quite an intriguing it is. question. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah, well, church church tradition identifies that young man actually as the gospel author. That That's John Mark, the evangelist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you find that very early in the in the fathers. And if he was if he was a teenager at the time wearing a single linen garment, then he was in the Essene movement. Right. So that right. would be evidence that, right. you know, he was... And then if you look carefully in Acts, it seems as though his mother, John, John Mark's mother, owned the house where the upper room was. And, and that all makes sense then. That's mm-hmm. why John would be kind of lurking around the disciples uh, mm-hmm. at the, at the mm-hmm. evening of the Last Supper mm-hmm. and kind of trails them out to Gethsemane mm-hmm. where he ends up like so many teenagers throughout history in the wrong place at the wrong hey, time the wrong when time. the police show up. <laughs> right. <laughs> well said. Well said. I, I also wonder to myself if there aren't other Qumrans, if I may put it that way, yet to be discovered in the few. Who knows? Right? Others yeah, that are we preserved. don't know what we don't know. Right? Yeah. You don't know what you don't know. But so who knows what future generations will be chatting about on other podcasts or whatever yes, mean of communication they have in those days, who knows. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, speak to me about another topic that you are very much uh, knowledgeable and have done research and written about. And I'm just gonna preface it. In 2025, the Holy Father has called a Jubilee for the year for the church. Rome is expecting 37 million visitors to come to Rome, right? That's almost seven times the city population. But this concept of the Jubilee is not new, right? It is ancient. No. So what is it ultimately? What is, what is this concept of yeah. the Jubilee? Yeah, the concept of the Jubilee goes back to Leviticus 25. And uh, uh, you know, I, I wrote my dissertation mm-hmm. on this for yeah. my doctoral program. So I, I could give you so many details, but we're, we're going to keep it to the important stuff that's really spiritually relevant. So the Moses commanded the people of Israel every 50 years observe a jubilee where you'll blow the trumpet at Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the Jewish year, and uh, all the indentured servants will go home to their ancestral family property and any family land that's been sold to pay off debt will revert to the family that it was signed to, and everybody, all family and all land is restored. It's like you press a reset on mm-hmm. the whole economy, and everybody re- returns to land and property. And the real point was to keep the family together. 
uh, and, and to maintain the identity of the family and ultimately of the nation. And it was a nation under God, it, you know, Israel as the people of God. That was really at the heart of Jubilee. And to, to not let economic necessity destroy the heritage and especially the faith, the, the faith tradition of, of the families of Israel. And so that's the real heart of the Jubilee, I would say, uh, Bishop. It, it was a, a year of freedom. You know, it, was, it, it, it began on the Day of Atonement, which is very beautiful, because you see there that first the high priest would atone for sin, which was a debt that we owed to God. So our debt to God was forgiven, and then they would blow the trumpet, and all human debt was was uh, uh, wiped away, was was forgiven. And so we see that because we're forgiven by God of the debt of our sin, which is the greatest debt we can we owe, we should be generous towards others and provide a way for everyone to you know to be free of debt and and to be able to enjoy that natural good of family and faith and and dignity so um so we see the tie between our spiritual relationship to god and, and how we how we treat each other economically and and again i would reiterate i think the biggest point of the the jubilee for the people of ancient israel was again not to allow economic destitution and economic forces to destroy the transmission of identity and culture, but especially faith in God mm -hmm. from one generation mm -hmm. to another. And, and so when we seek, like, how do we apply that in the current day? It might not work to, like, literally try to implement those laws, which were set up for a farming people, like an agrarian people, and we're not that so much anymore. But we can look at other ways of, like, how can we keep families together? How can we, you know, even fostering strong marriages nowadays would, would be an application of the Jubilee because its point was to keep, that keep the family and the faith intact from one generation to the, to the next. Mm -hmm. You know what's interesting in the year? Now, I may be, I th I'm, I'm almost certain it is the, the great Jubilee of the year 2000. Um, bishop Daly, who was the Bishop of Brooklyn, I remember he forgave almost a hundred and some odd million dollars of parish debts that were owed to the diocese. Wow. <laughs> as a reset, right? J just the way you, like within the family of the church and just right. began, just wiped it away, right? And yeah. to your point, there are ways for, for the church, even with the, amongst ourselves, to give parish communities yeah. a new, a new, that's interesting. So now for us, when like in 2025, the Holy Father's called the Jubilee of Mercy, then it's that starting point, right, of the forgiveness that we have received and extending it right. to others is a manifestation of that. Huh? It is. And, you know, you, you mentioned earlier the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. We can bring that back into the mix, mm -hmm. uh, Bishop, because there was a prophecy in the Dead Sea Scrolls that at the end of the ages, um, Melchizedek, the priest king, would come back. He is mentioned in Genesis 14, and and Melchizedek would return, and he would proclaim God's jubilee year, and that it would involve not the forgiveness of money debt, but the forgiveness of sin, and it would involve not freedom from 
uh, human slavery necessarily, but freedom from uh, Satan, freedom from Satan. Mm. And, and it was associated, they associated it with that wonderful servant song from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the Essenes said, that's Melchizedek. That's what Melchizedek's going to do. He's going to preach the good news and he's proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. And wouldn't you know, that's, that's the passage of Isaiah that our Lord reads at his first uh, visit to Nazareth mm-hmm. in Luke 4. He reads that. And, and then he says, this is now fulfilled. And well, that, well, that's great, but you know, let's see your game. You know, like <laughs> what? it's great that you say it's fulfilled, but what, what can you do? Well, he proceeds to cast a devil out of a man at Capernaum. He exercises a man, releasing him from slavery to Satan. And in the next chapter, when they l- lower that paralytic down in front of him, he says, your sins are forgiven. And so Jesus actually fulfills these expectations that the Essenes had for the Melchizedek who was going to come back and proclaim the Jubilee year. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, for me personally, Father uh, uh, Bishop, the, the sacrament of reconciliation is, is the perpetual Jubilee, because that's a sacrament where our debt of sin is, is wiped away and we're freed from Satan. And I learned this in Protestant ministry because I belonged to a group of Protestant deliverance ministers, and we discovered by experience that uh, it was it, the best way to release people from affliction, from evil spirits, was to have them confess all their sins mm. in the presence of other believers. And so we used that as a form of exorcism. We would take people through like a two-hour what, what, what I now call a general confession. That's basically what we were doing mm-hmm. in the presence of other people. And we found that it gave people freedom from, you know, strange things that were going on in their lives. And, and that's backed up by Father Gabriel Amorth, you know, he, the, the former chief exorcist of Rome. In his, in his books, he talks about that, how when anybody came to him for an exorcism, he would start with a general confession. And that most of the time, a general confession, which if people don't know, is like a very systematic, thorough confession. He found that most of the time that would release people from any difficulties that they were having Mm -hmm. in their homes or in their Mm -hmm. lives. Mm -hmm. And only in a few instances did he have to actually do an exorcism. So it's amazing how, you know, again, the sacrament of reconciliation is, is the perpetual jubilee that we can access at any time. That is a great image. A perpetual jubilee. Now that's definitely I, that is that that is ripe for many homilies. Thank you. I think that is a great <laughs> so, image. <laughs> yeah, I, I get it from the Chaldeans. That that's what they call their liturgy. Uh-huh. I never knew this, but a Chaldean priest told me that their whole liturgical year they call it perpetual jubilee. In their, uh, I wow. think it's Aramaic is the language that they wow. speak. Wow. Yeah. Uh, do we, yeah. Do we have more time, Steve? We have two minutes. So you have three minutes. All right. He keeps waving two or three fingers. So it's two and a half. <laughs> John, in the last couple of minutes, um, open forum for all the things you've taught for the, for the people who are listening to us in this podcast. And a, a lesson, a thought, a challenge regarding the word of God or what you have learned along the way. Yeah, the biggest thing that I've learned is is simply to read the Word of God. 
um, on a daily basis. You know, I have a, you know, I've got a pocket, a pocket New Testament that I buy these from Scepter Publishers, which is out in New York. I think they're in New Rochelle. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, I get this and I, I carry one with me. I have one in every glove compartment of every one of my cars. Uh, I've given them to each of my kids. Uh, I have them laying around the house. Um, and, and I just try to read every, every day. And, and if I don't understand, I pray and I, I try to look it up. And it, it's as simple as that. It's just trying to stay in the Word of God every day. And when you do that, it, it's remarkable what you learn. It's remarkable how what it will say in your daily reading, no matter what plan you're using, it's remarkable how relevant it will be. Like it'll touch something that's that's taking place in your life and and give you, so to speak, God's perspective. You know, we're always reading the news like Americans are new addicts, but this is the good news. And <laughs> we need to get addicted to the good news rather than the bad news on CNN and everything else that's out there. Well said. Well said. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. You're so welcome. with that, we're going to take one more break. Thank we'll you, be Bishop. back on the other side with a listener question for um, Bishop Frank. His Excellency has been speaking with Dr. John Bergsma, Professor of Theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, and we will be right back. Hey, this is Matt Sparazza from The Tangent. Each week on The Tangent, my co-host, Father Sam Kachuba, and I go on tangents to show how intertwined the Catholic faith and our culture really are. With guests like Scott Hahn, Dr. Greg Pitaro, Kristalina Everett, and so many more, The Tangent is always entertaining and informative. Check us out on Fridays at 12.30 on 103.9 FM, 1350 AM, anytime on the Veritas app, or wherever you get your podcasts. God bless. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Excellency. Here mm -hmm. is this week's question. Mm -hmm. Bishop Frank, why do newly ordained priests lie prostrate during their ordination ceremony? Well, I must confess, I'm sure there is an historical origin for it that I would need to kind of look up and then we could come back to it. But I think the spiritual significance is just clear. Whether it's final professed vows in consecrated life, whether it's ordination to diaconate priesthood or the episcopacy, it is the moment of humble surrender before the, uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? Because in the end, when you are ordained a priest, you are ordained in persona Christi. And we ought to become transparent to the presence and power of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's a dying and rising in some sense. And it's the dying and the rising before you're actually ordained, that is both symbolically speaks to the congregation and to the person involved, but also really kind of in many ways in sign makes clear what actually is happening here. Now, the historical origin is an interesting question, which I will, next week we'll, we'll take it up if where it actually arose in the in the in the tradition of the church. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. So, mm -hmm. if you have a question for, for Bishop Frank. Send it in on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. And we'd like to thank our sponsor, Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. 
Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport. And you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. And Dr. John Bergsma, thank you so much for joining us. I am sure that after having listened to you, your knowledge and your humor, that people will want to go someplace to find more from you. And, and by the way, I'll tell folks to pick up your books because they have stick figure drawings alongside this incredible theology. So Dr. Bergsma, where can people go to get more from you? Sure. CatholicBibleTeacher.com uh, will get folks to my website. They can go to Israel with me uh, next July, sign up for the pilgrimage, oh. uh, check out my books, uh, check out the audio materials. It's, it's all there on uh, CatholicBibleTeacher.com or JohnBergsma.com, but nobody knows how to spell Bergsma, so <laughs> CatholicBibleTeacher.com Catholic is better. <laughs> well, John, thank you for taking the time to be with us. It's tremendous. It's, a, it's, a, it's an honor, Excellency. Thank mm -hmm. you for having me on. And I will pray for you, you pray for me, and for all of our listeners, and until we all get to heaven. And then we'll have every answer to every question we've ever had, right? <laughs> Would you give us your blessing, Excellency? Certainly. Certainly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord our God, we give you thanks for the opportunity to serve you, to come to know and love you, through your Holy Word, through the sacraments of our church, most especially in the Holy Eucharist. Continue to bless our individual journeys. Keep us always faithful and courageous in witnessing to the word of salvation that comes in Jesus Christ. And we ask that your Holy Spirit bless us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Be well, my friends. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.